0: first funeral I ever officiated was for Paisley's grandfather. I was in seminary. I was not yet ordained. It was a great honor to be asked by the family uh, to step into that occasion. It was a very simple service at the graveside. I didn't even preach. We sang a hymn a cappella. A few prayers were said. And then I read Psalm 23, the most famous of all the psalms. And the beautiful words of that psalm were enough for the occasion. Psalm 23 is often read at funerals. Its verses speak of God's tender care for us. It tells us that he is with us even in the face of death, that his rod, his staff are comforting us in the dark valleys of life. And then the psalm concludes, as we heard with this promise, that we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those are the kinds of words that we do need to hear when we're mourning the death of a loved one. But Psalm 23 is more than just a good scripture for a funeral. It's powerful words and imageries express who God is and who we are. And in doing so, it has this ability ability to reorient us to reality. And so it's a frequent prayer that we need to adopt uh, into our prayer life. It's good to do at a funeral because death gets our attention. Death itself can slow us down and refocus us on what's important. In the busyness of life, it's hard to slow down and pray at all. It's especially hard to slow down and pray Psalm 23 with its pastoral metaphors and green pastures and quiet waters, it seems more like a fantasy than something that really comes to bear on our life. And maybe you're feeling that today as we're stepping out of one season into another and what that can do to our schedules and to a sense of busyness. And if you're not feeling that right now, just wait till the traffic tomorrow morning as school starts and you will feel it. So in the frenetic pace of our lives, Psalm 23 can sound a little bit more like words of sentimentality, not entirely relevant, something that maybe somebody could crochet and and hang on their wall. But I think it's important to slow down and to orient ourselves by Psalm 23 to let its pictures, and it's got some wonderful pictures, capture our imagination. This is a prayer for people living all of life the highs and the lows and if you've been with us through the summer you know that we've been going through this journey in the Psalms this is going to be our last Psalm for the summer we've covered a lot of ground we've gone through lament had a few Psalms on that of how to deal well with our pain and we've had joy we looked at Psalm 16 a couple of weeks and how does it is that we can cultivate joy in our lives we looked at Psalm 46 last week and What do we do with anxiety and fear? Where do we uh, go when we experience those things? I think Psalm 23 is a great way to end because it brings a lot of those themes together, joy and anxiety, highs and lows, and it weaves them together. And it shows us what it looks like to be a person of faith, a pilgrim, if you will, on the move, journeying towards our true home. And so that's how we're gonna wrap up uh, this summer series with Psalm 23. If you don't have it memorized or you don't have a Bible in front of you, we have started putting some Bibles back there and downstairs when you walk in the door. It is very handy to have a Bible that you can open and follow along. So I invite you to turn there. It begins with a very simple and yet powerful affirmation. The Lord is my shepherd. Now thus far in the Psalms, the Lord has been called a lot of things. He's been called uh, my strength My deliverer, my rock, my redeemer. Last week, 46, we saw he's my fortress. But calling the Lord my shepherd goes deeper. We know that Psalm 23 is attributed to King David. And when David wanted to write a psalm about the Lord's care for him, he went to this metaphor that he knew well. Before he was a king, David was a shepherd. He was familiar with that intimate relationship between shepherd and sheep. A shepherd lived among the sheep. He knew each of them by name. He knew what they liked, what they disliked, their strength, their weaknesses, their personalities. He knew which ones were prone to wander off, which ones were weak and frail, which ones were headstrong and independent. And the sheep only recognized their shepherd's voice and they would come when they were called. So this is quite the amazing statement that David is making. The Lord, Yahweh, the the Holy One of Israel, the one who created all that can be seen, all that is unseen. He is my shepherd. He's personalizing it. He knows my name. He knows my strengths, my weaknesses, my peculiarities, and he cares for me. Now, some of us in here, hopefully many of us, know God in this intimate way. But for others, maybe this is a revelation. Or maybe you had known God in this way, and if you're honest with yourself, it's been a bit impersonal lately. We're reminded that this transcendent God, the holy other, has drawn near to us in this wonderful metaphor of shepherd and sheep. So that's a nice affirmation, and it certainly can warm the heart. The Lord is my shepherd. But if that is so, then there's a very humbling implication, is there not? That means that we are sheep. And sheep are not the noblest, the brightest, or the strongest creatures in the animal kingdom. They are needy, dependent, and easily frightened. It takes a little bit of humility, to see ourselves as a sheep. I think we prefer to be cats. Smart, independent, mostly take care of ourselves. The master can scratch our ears now and then, put some food out, and clean up our litter box when we make a mess. But to be a sheep requires a lot deeper level of trust, of dependency, and of intimacy. It requires that we let go of some of our lofty ideas about ourselves and our rugged individualism and self-determination. And so some of us just need to stay on this one opening affirmation of the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Not only to remind us of who He is and how personal He cares for us, but also to remind ourselves who we are, needy, dependent sheep. And so I think that line, the Lord is my shepherd, is, is sort of like the doorway into the whole psalm. It says to anyone who would enter Psalm 23, is the Lord your shepherd? Are you relating to him as a sheep? If so, then come in further and see the wonderful dynamics of this shepherd-sheep relationships. There is provision, there is guidance, there is protection. We'll see those in a moment. But if the Lord is not your shepherd, then you need to stay here at the door a little longer and understand what that means. It may take some humiliation, but it will be the most redemptive humiliation you have ever experienced. And so we come to some of the benefits, the blessings of knowing the Lord as shepherd. And the first one is provision. Right away, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, or I shall not be in want. Our society, and particularly our economy, is built on the assumption that we do lack something, and that we should be in want. Billions of dollars are spent on advertising to make us keep believing that. Billions of dollars of credit card offers are sent out every year to help people acquire what they do not have and often cannot afford. The message, the water that we're swimming in screams at us, do not be content. But knowing the Lord as shepherd takes us on a radically different path. Something about that relationship even as we swim in these waters, allow us to confidently say, I lack nothing. Now, I don't think that means that we'll never experience times of need. Many of you know what it feels like not to have a job and how hard that can be, or to have a job but to still struggle to make ends meet. Perhaps what David is getting at when he says, I lack nothing, is not that, oh, I've never experienced a time of need, but but more in line with what Paul will write in Philippians 4, where he says, I know what it is to be in need. I also know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. To be able to confidently declare, I lack nothing, doesn't come from looking around at our bank accounts, job prospects, 401ks, whatever else it might be that we look towards. It comes from looking into the eyes of the shepherd, from knowing that we belong to him and that in him we will have the strength to endure whatever the circumstance, well-fed or hungry. David goes on and he gives three imageries of the shepherd's provision. Green pastures, quiet waters, which literally reads waters of rest, and refreshment or restoration of the soul. Do we not long for these things? That greener grass, which tastes good and fills our bellies and our hearts, I got um, a minor obsession with the green pastures and the sheep when I was in Scotland last year. Basically started making fun of me because I would stop and take more pictures of sheep and then I would see more sheep in a green pasture and I would take more pictures of sheep. But it speaks to something in us of provision. And then you have these quiet waters of rest where the noisy chaos of life is left behind and if you were here last week, you remember the, the contrast we had with water. In Psalm 46, you had the, the roaring, foaming waters of the sea that were chaotic. They were scary. And then in the Lord's presence, they're transformed into the streams of blessing. Something similar is here. These waters of rest are waters of blessing. It's where the Lord takes us to refresh us. Well, I think the whole world is anxiously striving even when we're going out and buying or doing what we want this kind of existence. We want to know this provision, this restoration. Christians, we're not immune to that. We want that kind of existence as well. But here's the thing. We don't get there by charting our own course. That's the strange irony. And the grammar of these verses teach us this very thing. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the waters of rest. He refreshes my soul. We get so focused on the object of these sentences, the green pastures, the waters, the refreshment, but Christianity is always about the subject, and the subject is the Lord who is our shepherd. We must focus on him. He's the only one who will bring about this wonderful provision, but it'll be in his way and in his time. Sheep can't provide for themselves. It's one of the humbling things we need to know. We don't really know where to find the next pasture. We don't know where the waters of rest flow. All we can do is put our lives in the hands of the shepherd and let him lead us there. And that brings us to the second benefit of knowing the Lord as our shepherd, which is guidance, In verse 3, David writes, He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Now, a lot of translations will say paths of righteousness. That can be a little misleading because it's not referring to the Lord guiding us along these paths that make us righteous in some religious sense. The meaning is that the shepherd is guiding us along the, the good, the right, the correct paths that lead to good life. In a desert full of dead ends, The Lord knows the way to life. And we can count on Him guiding us well because He staked His own reputation on it. He says that He does it for His name's sake. So His honor, His reputation has been staked on taking care of His sheep. And this is something, when you get your mind around it, is incredibly comforting. Because one of the things we know about God is that he will always work for his own glory. Not in a selfish, conceited way. It's just part of his nature to put his glory on display, to allow his goodness and his power and his mercy to be seen for what it is. But in his love... God has so determined that his glory will be linked with the well-being of his sheep and that them being taken care of and lifted up will somehow manifest even more fully his own glory. There's no better guarantee than that. The Lord will not let our foot slip. He will never leave us on a dead-end street. Now sometimes we are going to wander off And we may find ourselves on a path that leads to ruin and to destruction, but even then the shepherd will come rescue his lost sheep. Well, knowing that the Lord is always going to lead us on right path because His glory depends on it, is going to help us read the next verse, in some ways the most difficult verse, rightly. Even though I walk through the darkest valley... Other translations say the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of deep darkness or thick gloom. The word used here is the strongest Hebrew word for darkness. In the book of Job, it's the same word used to describe the darkness of a mine shaft. Here's the astonishing fact, though. The Lord's right paths, His good guidance, will often lead His sheep through the deepest darkness they can imagine. Let that settle in for a second. We know that. And yet when we're led into a dark valley, those are the times we're saying, are you good? Are you the shepherd? Is your glory somehow going to be manifested through this? Because I don't see it right now. And yet we are assured in the words of this psalm that his right paths go right through these places of deep darkness. They look different for each of us. And sometimes we might compare our own valley to someone else's and say, oh, mine isn't that bad and I I shouldn't feel bad about it, but they're pretty dark when you're in the midst of them. And we might wonder our whole life and never really know, why was it, Lord, that you took us through that valley? Sometimes on the other side, we see it, we understand it, we see the redemption, but other times we don't, and we might just wrestle with that until we go home. Why that valley, Lord? I still don't see how that was a right path. But where we can take the most comfort is that God himself walked the dark valley. Jesus, the good shepherd, knew it well. God's right path for him led through the dark valley of Gethsemane, that garden where he sweat blood and he actually asked God for another path. And God didn't grant one and the son submitted to the will of the father. He was then betrayed by his own. His right path led him to Golgotha, the place of the skull where he was crucified between two criminals. His right path led him into a tomb and into the place of the dead. But that dark valley was not the end, of course. God didn't leave Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus' right path came out the other side into resurrection life. This life that is full of light, all the darkness has been dispelled. And it's that quality of life that is held out to us, that is promised to us, that He's going to bring us into as well. So God's right paths frequently lead us through little and big valleys of deep darkness. But in those valleys, we are not alone. And that brings us to the third benefit of knowing the Lord as shepherd, which is protection. Protection. In verse 4, he goes on to say, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The dark valleys are full of evil. And we should not be surprised about that. There are things that will come after us in those places the valley of cancer, the valley of unemployment, of divorce, of addiction, of depression. Those are very dark places. And yet, one statement changes it all You are with me. God, Emmanuel, the Lord, the Almighty, the creators of the heavens and the earth, has not only become the shepherd, but He is the shepherd who walks with us in the valley. We're not alone. We don't have a God who says, I'll meet you on the other side. And he says, I will go with you. Doesn't mean we want to go into the valley, but we have a new quality of courage and faith to step into it. With His presence, the Lord carries these two instruments, a rod and a staff, and those also bring us comfort. The rod was this short club made from the root of a tree with a ball on the end of it, and it was used to beat back predators, both human and other animals, seeking to harm the sheep. It was also sometimes used to discipline the sheep who had resisted the shepherd's authority. A dark valley is a very... uh, bad time to resist God's authority and think we're in charge. Sometimes God will remind us of that with a thump on the head. The staff is the piece that we're used to seeing in the shepherd's hand. It's the long piece of wood with the crook on the end of it. Tim Laniac, who has done extensive research into this shepherding analogy, he calls the staff an extension of the shepherd's caring and guiding presence. It was used by the shepherds to provide gentle assurance, direction, and encouragement at critical moments. It's also used to rescue the sheep that got lost. So the rod and the staff, great comfort in a dark valley, reminds us that the Lord is in charge, that he will protect us from evil, he will discipline us, but he will also encourage us and he'll rescue us. One more thing to notice in the grammar of verse four, and this is probably my favorite little bit about Psalm 23. For The first three verses, uh, David refers to the Lord in the third person. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He guides me. But then in the dark valley, David changes the pronoun. It's no longer third person. He now says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are your rod, your staff, they comfort me. See, we would think that it would be on those quiet pastures beside the waters that we really get close to the Lord, that we really can enjoy his presence, and yet somehow it's in the valley where the he becomes the you, where the, the one over there becomes the one very, very near. Well, after verse four, David changes our metaphor. It's no longer shepherd and sheep. The Lord's care for us is too good for just one metaphor. And so in verse 5, David will see the Lord as his host and himself as the guest. Verse 5 begins, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So the Lord is pictured as this host extending gracious hospitality by setting this lavish meal before his guest. Once again, the Lord is the provider. But he extends the hospitality, not just anywhere, but in the presence of David's enemies. And I think there's two things going on here. One is a simple acknowledgement that life is hard. There are dark valleys. There are enemies. This is one of the details in Psalm 23 that shows us this is not just about sentimentality. David's prayer is for people who are engaged as life as it really is, full of all its struggles. But none of these stop the Lord from caring for us. He extends his divine hospitality wherever we happen to be in life, in the presence of our enemies, if need be. I also think the feast in the presence of the enemies is a symbol of vindication and justice because the enemies aren't feasting. They're not invited to the feast. They are left to watch the Lord pour out his favor on his anointed one. And this is consistent with the Psalms, where there's often these prayers for vindication over enemies, for justice. And Psalm 23 shows us the fulfillment of that. Verse 5 continues You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Hospitality in the Middle East, completely different concept than we're used to, especially so in ancient times. Uh, Eating with someone was a sacred act that built a bond of trust. It established a relationship. Guests were treated with the utmost honor. They had this perfumed oil that they were anointed with when they came to the meal. It shows up in the Gospels. Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus It rebukes Simon the Pharisee for having him over to this meal, but neglecting to anoint his head with oil. All the while, there's this sinful woman washing Jesus' feet with perfumed oil. It's a sign of hospitality. And then you have the cup of the guest, always kept full, often with the best of the wine. Maybe you've had the experience of going to a really nice restaurant. I don't know they do this too much anymore uh, in the United States, but maybe in Europe or somewhere. And they have the sommelier, the person who's responsible for the wine. And if you try to fill your own wine cup, they'll come running from the other side of the restaurant because that's a no-no. Like they need to fill your wine cup. And if they're not keeping it full, they're not doing a good job. So this overflowing cup, it's another symbol of God's gracious, lavish hospitality poured on us. I love this uh, poem by George Herbert. It captures the loving hospitality of God in this picture of a meal. He writes, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I can't even look on thee. But love took my hand, and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat so I did sit and eat. God's love in Christ has made all the preparations. and He bids us to come to his feast as his guest. He anoints us with the Holy Spirit and our cup overflows with new wine. Verse 6, David changes the metaphor one more time. It appears now that he has in mind the pilgrim on the journey. Let me read the verse a bit more literally that I think helps draw out this picture. Only your goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's like David has paused in the middle of his life to reflect on where he's come from and where he's going. And knowing the Lord as he has through this shepherding analogy, through this host analogy, is giving him great confidence as a pilgrim to continue his journey. As he looks back on the road that he's traveled thus far, he says, only your goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. Now that word pursue, often is translated follow, but it's the word pursue and it's usually used not for good things but for being pursued by one's enemies. But as David looks back, what he sees that's been pursuing them all this time is not an enemy, but God's goodness and his love. As he looks back over the dark valleys, the encounters with enemies, the bad choices, what he sees is goodness and love of his shepherd. It's been there all along, following him, pursuing him. Sometimes we wonder where the Lord's goodness and love are in our lives. They may seem distant. And yet, I hope you've had that experience of looking back. Sometimes it's years later and discovering, wow, it was there all along. It was running after me. And we can go forward with confidence knowing that it's not our enemies, it's not our bad decisions that will pursue us, but just the Lord's goodness and love. And then David turns from looking back to look forward, and he concludes by saying, I will return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word return gets left out, but it's there in the original text, and it helps fill out this picture of pilgrimage. With confidence that it's the Lord's love that's following him, pursuing him, David looks towards home, towards the house of the shepherd will dwell forever with that gracious host who will lay out the feast before him. It's that final verse that reminds us that this life, as good as it can be, as hard as it can be, it's only a prelude to the real thing. It's only the cover and the title page, as Lewis reflects. And our hearts ache and long for the city of the great king. Friends, it is a reality, it is coming. And we need to live our lives, even as frenetic and crazy as they can be, as this journey, this pilgrimage, moving towards a very sweet place, knowing the best is yet to come. So this is Psalm 23. It's a treasure. Continue to use it at funerals. It's a great comfort. But let us use it much more often. Let its imageries wash over you. And let this be a prayer frequently on your lips. Let's pray.